please keep your Bibles open or your devices open. Because the most important thing this morning is that you follow the Word of God. For anyone who lives in a Western country, whether they are a Christian or a non-Christian, they should be aware that Christians believe that Jesus was nailed to a cross and died. After all, the cross is the symbol of Christianity, widely recognised. But very few people in Australia understand what to make of Jesus' death. Why is Jesus' death on the cross so important to us as Christians? What's it all about? When Mark wrote these words that we read this morning, he wrote them to the Christians living in Rome in the 60s under Nero. They lived in a world who did not understand why Christians would worship a crucified criminal. This piece of graffiti from ancient Rome sums up how the average Roman viewed the Christian worship of Jesus. Whoever wrote this graffiti is mocking a Christian whose name is Alexamenos. He's picturing Jesus like the Egyptian gods with a human body and an animal's head. And he's saying that Alexamenos' God is a donkey. A donkey who's being crucified. It was well known that the Romans only crucified criminals, traitors to Rome, rebellious slaves, and the general low-class scum of the earth. So by picturing Alexamenos as worshipping someone on a cross, he's saying quite clearly that Alexamenos and all Christians are stupid for worshipping as God crucified scum. And in some ways, that's our world too. Our world knows we worship Jesus. They know we worship him as God sometimes. They know he died on a cross. But they don't understand why. And they can often think that we as Christians are embarrassing or shameful for what we believe and do. Mark wrote these words that we read. He wrote his whole gospel so that we could be sure that Jesus is the Son of God and so that we would understand why his shameful death was actually nothing to be ashamed of and why his shameful death should be at the centre of our beliefs. Let's pay close attention as we work through this passage. Let's pay close attention to what Mark is telling us for two reasons. We want to pay close attention so we can be clear in our minds why Jesus' death on a shameful cross is at the centre of our faith. And also, second reason why we want to pay close attention is so that we can be ready to follow Jesus in the midst of a world that doesn't understand what the cross is about or what Jesus is about. So now, before we read Mark's account of Jesus' crucifixion, there's a few important words I just want to go through about how to read Mark's gospel as a whole. Mark's gospel 
begins with the opening words. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And just a few verses later, we hear from the very mouth of God himself in Mark 1.11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So as we read through the events of the crucifixion, as we meet various people who are abusing, mocking and inflicting pain on Jesus for his claims to be son of God and king, we need to read all of this in the light of the fact that God has already told us that he in fact is the son of God. Secondly, as we read through this account of Jesus' crucifixion, we're meant to read it in the light of prophecies, and in particular, Isaiah 53. I love the way a lot of the songs this morning were actually words taken straight out of Isaiah 53. Mark wants us to recognise that the death and the abuse and mocking of Jesus, while it is sorrowful and it is shameful, was prophesied and was a necessary part of God's plan. One more thing we need to recognise that Mark is doing as we read his gospel. Mark doesn't want us to just understand the theological facts of the divinity of Jesus. Mark wants us, God wants us, to feel the story, to feel the suffering, to feel the shame. He wants us to see the shame of it all. This passage is addressed to our heads so that we know the facts of what happened. But it also is meant to speak into our heart. It's meant to react with us so that we deeply feel in our inner being that our Messiah King is suffering in our place. When I say suffering in our place, by our, I mean for those of us who trust and follow Jesus. As you finished last week, Pilate had just sentenced Jesus, take him away and crucify him. As we pick up this week, the prisoner, sentenced prisoner, is now taken from the presence of Pilate and taken into the Roman barracks. In verse 16, they took Jesus into the praetorium. The praetorium was the barracks of the praetorian guard. They were the elite special guard who guarded the emperor and his governors and prefects. They were protecting the governor's prefect, Pilate. If you look at the map of first century Jerusalem, there were two Roman barracks in Jerusalem. The Fortress Antonia, that was located at the temple to be the first response to rebellion because most rebellions among the Jews would start at the temple. And the Praetorian barracks was the other barracks located inside Herod's palace that had been requisitioned for the use of the Romans and the governor. The interactions that we looked at last week 
between Pilate, the Jewish leaders and the crowds, they took place in the open marketplace that was right next to Herod's palace, right next to the Praetorian barracks. Then they take Jesus back into the palace, into the Praetorian barracks, or as that could be more literally translated or should be more literally translated, into the courtyard. It says in 16 that the whole company gathered. Now in technical terms, in the original translation, the word is a cohort. A cohort is one-tenth of a legion. So we're looking at about 600 men. Forget the movies where you've just got a small handful of men in a little room. That's not what happened. The Greek tells us quite clearly this is serious mocking. They are using Jesus for entertainment like a pantomime stage show for the amusement of 600 men. The mocking words, Hail the King of the Jews! You can hear the mocking laughter of the 600 gathered around the courtyard. They mock him, putting on a purple robe of royalty, probably borrowed just straight from Herod's palace and then put back again after they were finished with it. The ridicule of the crown of thorns, the ridicule of kneeling at his feet. They strike him on the head with the staff. They spit on him. Jesus endures the shame and the humiliation as he is their toy for their game among the boys. They think they're mocking a wannabe failure. But in their spiritual blindness, they are blind to the fact that they do in fact have right in front of them God's Messiah King, right there in the palace of the King of the Jews. As we read this, knowing that God has indeed declared him to be the king, we cry out within, no. He is God's Messiah King. This shouldn't be. You can't treat God's son like this. But then our minds go to Isaiah 53.3. And we know that this was all part of God's plan. They then conspire, they then conscript Simon to carry the cross. This is common practice because it was regular. After the pre-crucifixion beating, the prisoner was often too weak to carry the cross. So they often conscripted someone. Mark's editorial note there in 21 that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus is first century code for naming his eyewitness sources. Mark wrote this gospel for the church in Rome. Paul, later, when he wrote to the church in Rome, actually in 16.3, greets Rufus in the church in Rome. See, Rufus was now living in Rome and part of the church. And Mark is in fact telling the church, if you want to verify this from eyewitness sources, just go ask Rufus and Alexander. They're there in your church. In 22, he was taken to the place of the skull. It was possibly this place 
You see the eyes of the skull with the light shining on the middle of it? It's just outside the walls of Jerusalem and you can still visit there today. It's a bus car park now. In 23, they offered him myrrh. This is a drug that actually dulled the pain. But it wasn't an act of kindness. As expert torturers, the Romans used the myrrh to keep the prisoner alive to make sure he didn't pass out from the pain so that they could extend the pain and the shame and the humiliation. But the point Mark wants us to get is Jesus endured all of this without the aid of drugs. In 24, we see the bare simple words and they crucified him. Despite the many movies you see, which focuses in on the blood and the guts and the whippings and focuses, we get a close-up shot of the nails going in and the pain. Despite what you see in the movies, Mark is loudly silent about the blood and guts and the physical details. It seems like Mark doesn't want us to focus on the physical pain. He wants us to focus on the shame of it all and the humiliation. In 24, they divide his clothes. Yes, despite the statues you see, he was completely naked. The extreme shame. They played lots on the ground to divide his clothes. No respect. They think so little of him. 25, 26. It was a Roman custom to put a sign over the crucified victim stating what his crime was. Mark and God want us to know that his crime was being the king. Again, this is dripping with irony that we see that those there may not have seen, probably didn't see. Pilate didn't put that sign up as an act of worship. Pilate didn't put that sign up because he believed that politically Jesus was the king. Pilate put that up just to annoy the Jews. But for us, the reader, the sign is saying far more than Pilate intended. We get the irony. We get that Jesus was indeed our divine king. The sign was there for all to see for all who have eyes to see. In 1527, he was crucified with a criminal on each side. And we're meant to connect that with Isaiah 53:12. He was numbered among transgressors. In 29, they hurled insults. In 30, they mocked him. In 32, they heaped insults. Mockery on mockery on mockery. In 29, it came from those who passed by. In 31, it came from the chief priests and the scribes. And in 32, it even came from the other criminals. It, the mockery came from all sectors of society. Like most demands for a sign, the demand for a sign in 32 is not an act of faith but words of hard-hearted unbelief. A stubborn refusal 
to accept all the signs that Jesus had been doing right throughout Mark's Gospel. He'd given them each of the signs already. The irony of the whole scene is that from 29 to 32, the exact things they are mocking him for, insulting him for, and shaming him in their minds for not being able to do, are in fact the exact things he's actually doing on the cross. They mocked him for his claims to be able to destroy the temple and raise it up again. But the temple of his body was being destroyed there on the cross in front of their eyes. And he was going to raise his body from the grave a few days later. They said he couldn't save himself and others. But when they mocked him to come down, he could have come down if he wanted to. He was God. As John tells us, he could have called in a thousand angels. But he very intentionally, voluntarily, chose to endure the suffering of shame and death to save us. He was doing what they mocked him for not being able to do. The things they mocked him for in their spiritual blindness for not being able to do are the very things for which we worship and praise him and even sing about on those songs we sung earlier. In 33, we read of the three hours of darkness and we're meant to see the symbolism of the final and last plague of Egypt. In the darkness of Egypt, the angel of death came across the land and slaughtered the firstborn child of everyone who had not in faith sacrificed a Passover lamb and put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. But here, in the darkness of the cross, God was taking the blood of Jesus as the sacrificial Passover lamb as the reason to pass. He was accepting it as the Passover blood to pass over all who in faith would believe in him. But at the same time, he was actually in the darkness, in judgment, slaying Jesus for our unbelief, in judgment as his own firstborn son. Back in chapter 15, verse 29 to 32, they were demanding signs from Jesus. Now God has given them a sign, the darkness. And for those with eyes to see, the darkness was a sign that Amos 8-9 was taking place before their very eyes. This was a prophecy of the coming day, coming from Amos's point of view, when God would judge sin. And through the darkness at the cross, God was telling them that Jesus' death that they were witnessing was God's judgment against sin in fulfillment of Amos 8-9. The sin of the world, the sin of all of us, was taken from us and placed on Jesus. Now the darkness was symbolising that the judgment of God was being poured out, not on us for our sins, but the judgment of God was falling on Jesus for our sins so that we can one day stand before God 
our judgment already taken by Jesus at the cross. In 34, he does something else that helps us understand what's going on. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a psalm he's quoting where David, God's Messiah, felt like God had abandoned him. But as we read through Psalm 22, we realize that God hadn't actually really abandoned David. In the same way, and in one sense, God hadn't really abandoned Jesus because Jesus was still the Son of God, always was be, always was, always will be. Nothing can ever change that. But at the same time, in another way, Jesus' words were true. God did, in fact, turn his back on Jesus and forsake him. As God looked on Jesus and saw the sin of the world upon him, God saw the shame of that. And God, in an act of shaming Jesus and rejecting Jesus, turned his back on the shame of the cross and rejected the shamed Jesus. So that we now can stand before God with no fear of being shamed and rejected by God because Jesus has been shamed and rejected in our place. In 35, when he calls out, my God, they think he's calling for Elijah. That's an easy to make mistake because the shortened version of Elijah is Eli, which actually in Hebrew means, my God. Easy mistake to make. But when they say, let's see if Elijah comes, that's not curiosity. That's not faith. It's just more mocking. They're goading him for another divine sign. But the crowd is so spiritually unperceptive to what's happening, they don't recognize the words of Psalm 22, and they don't realize that Isaiah 53 verse 5 is being played out right before their eyes. Their problem was not an intellectual problem. They had the IQ to read that prophecy and look at what was happening and go, oh, I can see. They had the intellectual ability to do that. Their problem was a heart problem. They had hard, cynical, unbelieving hearts like many people who demand a sign from God. It didn't matter what sign God did. They couldn't see because in their heart they didn't want to believe and submit to God. The mockers didn't get the sign they asked for. Elijah didn't come. Jesus didn't come down from the cross. God doesn't bow to our demands for a sign. But as an act of grace and mercy, he did give them the sign of the darkness so that if there was any hint of humility on faith or faith, they might see the darkness sign and turn and believe and be saved. In 37, Jesus cries out with a loud cry as opposed to suffering in silence up to this point. But he only cries out now because the real suffering and pain was not the earlier nails, the real suffering and pain was the rejection by God and the wrath of God. That's what brings a cry from him. In 38, 
God gives us a second sign for those with eyes to see. The curtain and the temple is ripped and torn in two from top to bottom. God is telling us by that that Jesus' sacrifice has been accepted. The curtain that was torn in two was the curtain that kept people away from God's presence in the inner temple. God didn't keep people away because he hated people. God kept people away because it was an act of mercy. Because if we with sin came face to face with God, we would die. And we would face the full judgment of God. This curtain kept us away to save us from judgment and death. But in the tearing of the curtain in two, God is symbolically saying that Jesus' death, sacrifice, has been accepted. We will no longer die for our sins if we face God. God and people can now come face to face because Jesus' death has paid the death, shame and judgment of our sin. In 39, a Roman centurion sees and recognises what the mockers do not. Surely this man was the son of God. For us, the reader, this Roman in verse 39 serves two functions. Firstly, he probably didn't fully get what it meant for Jesus to be the Son of God. But he's on the way. God's opening his eyes. But for us, the reader, he verbalises what we are meant to see and get with the whole of scriptures before us. He verbalises that we are meant, what we are meant to conclude that Jesus surely is the Son of God. The second thing he does is he shows us that it's possible to move from being a blind mocker to being a seeing believer. If we think back to when the Roman soldiers mocked him in 16 to 2030 in the Praetorian Guard, this centurion was probably there laughing at Jesus. As a centurion, he may even be one of the leaders who beat Jesus and spat on him. But now he sees. Mark records this detail to challenge the original Roman readers. This Roman saw. Do you see? What does Mark want us to see? His first readers in Rome lived in a world who knew that Christians worshipped as God a guy who died on a cross. But their Roman world didn't really see who Jesus was or why he died. The Christians to whom Mark wrote lived in a world that told them they were foolish to worship someone who died a shameful death on a cross. Mark wrote to them, and he wrote to all who would later read his gospel, including us right here and now, so that they, we, despite our world's mocking, might see and know and trust in Jesus as the Son of God, God's appointed King who suffered for us and died in our place for our sin and shame. He also wrote so that we might understand in a clearer way what Jesus meant back in chapter 8, verse 34, when he said, whoever wants to be my disciple 
must deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. Jesus endured the suffering and shame of his people to bring them to salvation. If we would follow Jesus, we too must be willing to bear that suffering and shame so that we can bring others to salvation. Jesus is not saying that everyone will hate us all the time. If we're true followers of Jesus, people will see the love of God. They will see the salt and light that we bring to the world. And many of them will turn and come. But the world will also mock and shame us. If we are to endure it as followers of Jesus, then we must know what we learn in Mark's gospel and follow in his footsteps to bring salvation to the world. Now let me speak for just a couple of minutes but as we close to those who are considering whether or not they should be a follower of Jesus. Jesus' command back in Mark 1.15 to turn or repent and believe the good news is a command to be willing to do something that your world and even your family around you may not understand. That command is a command to do something that may cost you in terms of suffering and shame. But it's also a command from God's King who suffered and died for you that you could come and join Him in the Kingdom of God. There's a cost and there's a benefit. Let me speak as someone who's been following Jesus for over 40 years now. It has cost me. I can think of times of mocking and ridicule. I'm sure it will cost me more before I die. But it's worth every sacrifice to know Jesus and to be part of his kingdom. To finish, yes, Jesus did die a shameful and cursed death on the cross. But it's nothing to be ashamed of. He did it as our king in our place to save us. If you're a follower of Jesus and want to speak more about what it means to not just say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but what it actually means to follow him, or if you have questions and want to speak more about what it means to become a follower of Jesus, then I'll be around for a while afterwards. But better still, Iggy and the church leaders, they're all around and they'd love to talk to you. If you want to talk more, ask someone who knows them to introduce you to them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Saviour's death on the cross in our place. Forgive us for the times when we're ashamed of him. Forgive us for the times where maybe even we have been mockers. May we look to Jesus on the cross and may we not see someone to be ashamed of, but may we sing our King in our place and may we trust him and follow him. Amen. Thank you, Wes, for your very thoughtful, very clear, and very um, encouraging, captivating presentation and exposition of this Word of God to just remind us that Jesus' death on a shameful cross and his death is necessary for our salvation. And what you said about darkness symbolized judgment, 
pour out on Jesus on behalf of our sin. That's just so awesome that Jesus would be willing to carry the sins of the world and our sins so that we might be forgiven and be saved. What a saviour we have to thank and to praise him. Before we collect the offering, just let us pray and ask God to help us to continue to live a life that is worthy of him. Lord, we thank you for the message today to remind us that your death on the cross is a very necessary part of your plan for our redemption and that we should not be ashamed of the shameful cross at Calvary because that was done in love, in grace for our salvation. So God, I just pray that as we continue to grow as your people, as disciples of your word, that we will continue to be bold in testifying of your great love and through the way we live our lives that we might indeed be light and salt and that we might radiate your love to those who do not know, know you. So God, help us to be true followers of Christ, not to deny you, not to be ashamed of you, but to embrace you with all our hearts and our souls. And God, as we give back to you a portion of what you've given to us, we want to do this cheerfully, gratefully, to honour your name. We ask you for wisdom as elders, the leaders of the church, use it for the extension of our kingdom. We give you thanks in Jesus' most precious and holy name. Amen. Thank you, Ashes. Good morning, church. My name is Susanna, and I'm up here today to lead us in prayer. Uh, this morning, we're praying for three things. Uh, first of all, we're praying for persecuted Christians around the world, uh, especially our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and in Asia. Um, we're also praying for the gospel to reach the heart of the next generation. And um, last of all, we're also praying for Transy and her time in the Mercy Ship. So I recently got an update from her, so she's doing quite well. She's settled in, um, but she's... Um, Ask for prayer because she's come across a few interesting or challenging medical cases and um, she's asked if we could pray for her and pray for wisdom um, uh, with this as well. So um, let's bow our head in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and the love you continue to show us time and again. 
We give thanks that you are a personal God who is always with us, who listens when we come to you in prayer. And this morning we lift up to you our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted because of their faith, especially in Asia and the Middle East. We ask, Lord, that you will protect them and their families and give them wisdom on how to continue being your light in difficult circumstances. And Lord, in their suffering, help them not lose heart, but stand firm in their faith and continue to draw strength from you. Remind them, Lord, of your love and faithfulness and the eternal glory that far outweighs their temporary troubles. And we pray for those who persecute our brothers and sisters that you will soften their hearts and one day they will come to know Jesus as their saviour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we also lift up to you our next generation of young adults. As we see secularisation in increase in Australia, we pray you will help our next generation navigate through such times. May the power of the gospel capture their hearts before they succumb to competing influences. Lord, help them understand what it means to be created in your image as the Bible points out. And help them understand and embrace real freedom in Christ alone and stand firm on the truth of the gospel. We pray there will be bold witnesses to not be afraid to be countercultural and to show the love of Christ to those that oppose them so that more will be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And finally, we lift up to you Transy as she serves on the Mercy Ship. Thank you for her safe flight to Guinea and that she has settled in well on her first week. And we thank you also for the amazing brothers and sisters she has met on board so far. Um, with the complex medical cases she has come across already, we ask, Lord, for your wisdom and guidance as she provides care for patients. We pray for a good support network and team on the ship to help her through the challenges but more importantly, that she will seek you first, knowing you are a God that's present, a God that listens, and a God who answers prayer according to your will. And through the busyness, may she find time to rest in you and help her continue to grow in her love for you as you walk alongside her on this journey. And may you continue to use her as a vessel of your grace to the people in Guinea. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing in response.
Corinthians 15, 56, 58. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that the, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Friends, let's keep encouraging each other about the word. Please take a seat.